0: So, yes, 2023 was the hottest year on record. And yes, we in New Zealand had devastating cyclones. Uh, There were wildfires around the world. But we need to say no to the doom and gloom around climate change, says Dr. Hannah Ritchie. She's a researcher at Oxford University and she's deputy editor of the online publication Our World in Data. And as a data scientist, she pours over numbers that give her a sense of uh, what she calls urgent optimism, that this generation will leave the environment better than it found it. Her new book is called Not the End of the World, How We Can Be the First Generation to Build a Sustainable Planet. And Dr. Hannah Ritchie joins me now. Hi.
1: Hi, thank you very much for having me.
0: What a pleasure to have you on. How have you enjoyed your book being out in the world? I know you've got a sub stack and they've had a bit of uh, interaction via that, but has it been a ride?
1: Yeah, it's been good. It's been uh, yeah, a bit of a surreal experience for me. Like I really enjoyed writing the book. I think com- publicity is doesn't come naturally to me, so that's <laughs> been, it's been a new experience. But yeah, it's been been really, really good.
0: Awesome. You put a picture of your younger self by your computer when you were writing this book. Um Were you once in that gloom and doom camp?
1: Yeah, definitely. So my my background is environmental science. But I even remember before that as a kid, just always been really worried and anxious about climate change and what the future looked like. And I think, yeah, I think my younger self um, was very much in this place where I felt like there was nothing we can do about this. It was uh, kind of too late to do anything And that kind of my future would just be get worse and worse and worse. And I think I think a lot of people feel like that today. And I think that feeling is entirely valid. But I think I I want to push back on that a bit and say, no, there are solutions out there. We are making progress. Let's think about how we can accelerate them.
0: What changed for you? What turned your anxiety to to optimism?
1: Um, I think I'd say i still I still have anxiety. I'm mm. still really concerned about the climate crisis that doesn't go away, but I think I now have a bit more what I'd frame as cautious optimism that I think I can see that the solutions are there. they're getting better and better, they're getting cheaper and cheaper um and I think that we now have a really unique opportunity to deploy them at scale and at speed. I think a really key turning point for me was discovering the work of a guy called Hans Rosling. Oh, yeah. Now He was a Swedish secession, and he would give these amazing TED Talks where he would show how the world was changing um, kind of over the last few centuries. And I think what he showed is that he didn't really cover environmental metrics, but he covered kind of social and and, and human uh wellbeing trends, and they've all been getting better. Um, the world is still very unequal, but but the world has been getting much much better. And I think for me, that was a bit of a wake-up call that not everything was getting worse. And if we're if if it's possible for us to make progress on that, then why can we not translate translate that into progress on the environment?
0: There's a feeling that we've known about climate change for decades and haven't done anything about it. We're still not acting on this urgent issue. Um, But that's not quite true as you see it.
1: No, I think we have, I mean, we, we, we should have taken taken action much, much earlier than we have, and we've kind of pushed action off now, and we're now in a position where we need to move very quickly. But I think especially over the last decade, we've made a lot of progress. I think for me, one of the really key trends is that although we've had solutions for a long time, like we we've had solar panels and wind turbines and batteries, even if you go back a decade or so, um, they were really, really expensive. So while we had solutions there, they weren't economic and they weren't affordable for us to deploy across the world. I think one of the really dramatic changes we've seen over the last 10 years is the plummeting cost of these energy sources. Now that they're now competitive or cheaper than fossil fuels. I think for me, that's really key because we're no longer in the position where it's this kind of false dichotomy of do you have uh, push human progress or, or economic growth, or do you reduce your carbon emissions? I think we're now in the position where, you know, you can actually have both at the same time.
0: Uh, yeah, but, the news doesn't help, not not to blame the media, but um, it is the job of the news, you point out, to show us unique things happening and dramatic things happening. And that's, you can make the mistake of, of thinking the news is reflecting all of reality.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think the news tells really important stories, and I don't I don't think we should shy away from those. But they do show us, in some sense, uh, specific events, and often those events are negative. I mean, you could argue that you know the news is there to tell us what was the worst thing that happened in the world today. And I think, although I think although those those individual stories matter, they don't. They often don't report on the kind of underlying massive changes that are happening on the positive side. Like you don't hear the story of the wind uh, farm that's just gone up or the solar panels that have been installed. And I think these are the incremental changes that we see day after day after day after day which don't make the news but you know five years on and you're in a completely different position from where you were so I think we need to combine this uh, seeing the changes are, are happening and we need this concern about the climate but we also need to combine that with um, an understanding of the solutions that are coming on board.
0: Uh, there's a quote of yours that I love you write that pessimism sounds intelligent and optimism dumb. Can you explain that for us?
1: Yeah. So I think if you kind of frame yourself as an optimist, you kind of sound what we'd frame as like airy fairy. And like you just see the world as this amazing place and it's going to continue to get better. And I think if you are kind of pessimistic or cynical, you seem more kind of logical or like you have kind of a wisdom that kind of Optimists don't have, mm. um, and I think that's the danger. Um, the way I see optimism is less of a um, just assuming that the world will get better because it won't. You know, the world only gets better because we, we push it and we push solutions but what i frame as kind of cautious optimism or urgent optimism is the understanding that things can get better like there are solutions there um if we take them we can make the world a better place so it's more about driving active optimism than this kind of complacent complacent optimism where we just you know sit and do nothing
0: optimism is often bundled in with naivety right
1: yeah i think it sounds yeah i think it sounds uh naive to 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 see a kind of optimistic future and i'm trying to push back on that a little bit
0: yeah and you're not calling for blind optimism
1: no definitely not um i think i think actually like blind optimism is arguably more dangerous than just pessimism. Um, I think if you are a blind optimist, like if you take climate change, for example, if you're a blind optimist, then we just become complacent and we don't take the threat seriously enough and we don't work on solutions. So I think blind optimism is is in, in some sense worse than extreme pessimism.
0: Yeah. But then there's, I mean, you mentioned urgent optimism. I also like this one, which is almost a synonym, which is conditional optimism. I feel as though if we do this, positive things will happen.
1: Yeah. And in the book, I I quote um, a kind of tagline from from the economist Paul Romer, who distinguishes these types of optimism. So um, kind of complacent optimism is, you know, giving kids a bunch of treats. Um, And then conditional optimism is telling kids, hey, if you work hard and build this treehouse, you'll have an amazing, you know, amazing project at the end of it. So it's about Framing it as, you know, you don't don't get stuff just handed to you on a plate. You have to work for it. But if you do work for it, there are really good outcomes at the other end.
0: And you point out that pessimists actually have an advantage because they get to move the goalposts.
1: Yeah, like we've seen this a lot on uh, kind of environmentalism. And actually, as an environmentalist, people often throw these headlines back in my face as if to say, you know, the science isn't true or the science is lying. But yeah, there's like a whole series of kind of doomsday headlines about when the world will end or when we'll run out of food Um and these go back really far back in history. But the problem is, you know, when they don't come true, um, pessimists often just move the goalposts. So, you know, if it's 10 years, after 10 years is over, so, oh, no, it's going to come in another 10 years. So they have the the kind of virtue of continually shifting it back. So we're always waiting for that kind of end point.
0: I'm talking to Dr. Hannah Ritchie. Her book is called Not the End of the World how we can be the first generation to build a sustainable planet. And we're talking about optimism in relation to climate change. She is also, by the way, the deputy editor of Our World in Data. Uh, Here in New Zealand, we've noticed some of the people who for years said that there, there was no problem with climate change have now moved into a different camp, which is there's nothing we can do about it. It happened almost overnight for some people. And I wonder if that sort of doomsdayism is a form of, or at least is the new version of climate denial. I wonder if people who say it's hopeless and um, the world is doomed are closer to people who say mm, there's no reason for concern um, than, say, people like you are, the the optimists or or, or, or the people who, um, who believe that something can be done.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is a trend that many of us have seen. And if I kind of speak to to other climate scientists, they would say the same, that for a long time they were kind of battling against climate denial. So people who would deny that climate change was happening or humans were causing it. And it seems like we've almost kind of done a 180 degrees turn immediately. And now the kind of narrative coming through is um, it's too late. You know, the solutions aren't there. There's nothing we can do about it. And in some sense, that's just as damaging. I think both extremes there lead to an action. So what I'm trying to push back against is this feeling of it's too late and there's nothing we can do about it, because because we can. There are solutions there. And I think we need to stop viewing climate change as a kind of binary. Either we stop climate change or it's the end of the world. In reality, the most likely outcome is somewhere in the middle, and there's a really broad spectrum of outcomes there ranging from pretty bad to really, really extremely bad. But where we land on that spectrum is completely up to us, and it's about the actions that we take today.
0: Do you see, well, we often hear about tipping points in relation to climate change, that it will be this slow, 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 and then we'll reach a point, the point of no return. Do you see a tipping point in the other direction, though? Do, Do you see this positive stuff that's happening adding up, and then suddenly it is in everyone's economic interests to make the environmental choice and and suddenly it moves quite quickly in the other direction
1: yeah so there are the the negative climate tipping points but i think we often also can can see a possibility of what we call it positive social tipping points and i think for many especially the technological trends I think the mistake that people often make is they assume that they will grow linearly. So they look at, you know, how solar or wind or electric vehicles are doing. And if you just draw a linear line from that, you know, that looks very bad. Like it will take a really long time for these solutions to scale. But actually, these solutions often don't follow a linear trend. They would follow what we'd call like an S-curve trend. Where initially you get very slow uptake, but then you hit this sort of tipping point. And from there, growth can actually be very fast, in some sense, almost exponential. And I think in many of these solutions, we actually are starting to kind of hit that tipping point where they can grow very, very quickly.
0: This is quite a bold statement in your book. You say the world has never been sustainable. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so I think uh, the way I frame it in the book, and this is a kind of standard definition of sustainability from kind of the UN's sustainable development, which is that sustainability has two halves. So on one half, it's kind of the environmental impact. So it's about protecting the environment to to protect future generations and the opportunities that they have. But I think there's the another half of that equation, which is that we also want to provide a good life for everyone on earth today. Like we want to reduce human suffering and, and give everyone a good life. Now, in the past, our ancestors probably had a very low environmental impact on most metrics. Um, but the issue is that if you look um, often at human outcomes, so like one of the examples there is child mortality uh, for most of human history, like the chances of of a child surviving to adulthood were kind of a cost. Like in many cases, it was 50-50. Um, now, over the last few centuries, we've seen amazing human progress. We've seen rapid reductions in child mortality, maternal mortality, mortality. Uh, poverty, hunger, many of the human well-being metrics, but the balance has tipped the other way. So that human progress has come at the cost of the environment. And uh, how I how I frame it in the book and how I see this is that I think we are now in this really unique position where I think we can balance both of these things at the same time. I think we can continue to prove uh improve human progress and human well-being while also reducing our environmental impact and i think if we achieve both of those things at the same time we will really reach this place where we can we can see we are sustainable
0: you've alluded to some of it but can you get take us through a, a few of the things that we are getting right
1: On the environment, I mean, I think, I mean, there are, in the book, I go through kind of seven of our big environmental problems. I think we often focus on climate, but there are a wide range of environmental problems. I think some of the areas where we've actually seen, you know, really success stories is in air pollution. So uh, go back a few decades and kind of the ozone layer or the ozone hole was the kind of climate change problem of its day. And actually there are lots of parallels to that where um, initially scientists were ignored um, governments didn't want to know about it, uh, industry didn't want to know about it, and they denied the problem. But, you know, a few decades on, and we've reduced the gases that depleted the ozone layer by more than 99%, and that problem is effectively solved. You could see the same for acid rain, where we have effectively uh, stopped acid rain in many countries and regions, and even in kind of local air pollution, which has very, very damaging health impacts um, globally, it's still a massive problem. So the estimates that are around seven million premature deaths every year from local air pollution. But in rich countries in particular, um, we've seen a, quite a stark decline in local air pollution, which has saved a lot of lives along the way. So I think on many of these different environmental problems, like on none of them are we where we should be, or, or it's not that we don't have any impact. But I think there are lots of stories of progress in there that we can learn from.
0: If we have the will, we can tackle some of these hard things. And, and you, you use the example of China ahead of the Beijing Olympics.
1: Yeah, so China's a really good example of, of reducing local air pollution. So um there was the, the two thousand and eight Beijing Olympics was, was held there. And if you if you ask people today, you know, name a, a city in the world that's got really high air pollution, I think most people would say kind of Beijing is quite mm. high on the list. Um, And that was certainly true just before the 2008 Olympics. But the Chinese government realized that the world was going to have all its eyes on the Olympics and there was athletes coming. So they did a very short term mission to try to clean up the air in Beijing. And actually, it was quite successful. Air pollution did reduce. Um, It was still one of the most polluted Olympics ever, but they did reduce air pollution. The problem is that when the rest of the world went home and the cameras went away, um, all the pollution came back. But um, the, the citizens of Beijing then kind of said, well, if you are willing to reduce air pollution for people coming in uh, externally, why, why are we living with these really high levels of air pollution? Why can we not do this, you know, all the time? And that actually led to, to, to government policy and, and uh, air pollution rates in Beijing have fallen a lot. Um, over the last kind of decade or so, and it 's actually made amazing amazing progress on air pollution and there are estimates that you know the the lifespan of citizens in Beijing have probably increased by as much as four years, so you 've seen really dramatic impacts there, and that came from citizens saying, "We are not happy with this, um, we won 't accept it.
0: You see reducing poverty as part of the part of the puzzle to solving air pollution.
1: Yeah, I think solving uh, poverty is is part of the the solution to air pollution, and in some sense also to climate change impacts. One of the big issues of air pollution is we think about often think about air, outdoor air pollution, which is you know pollution coming from our cars or our power stations, but indoor air pollution is a really big problem, especially at lower incomes. So people on low incomes often will use wood or charcoal or crop wastes indoors to to cook or heat. Now. Uh, People are then really exposed to high levels of pollution in the home and there's estimates that, that as much as three, three or four million people die from indoor air pollution every year. Now, we could massively reduce those deaths if people just got access to basic energy, which meant they didn't rely on wood or charcoal or crop waste. So there's a really low-hanging fruit there, but reducing poverty would also massively reduce air pollution deaths.
0: How do you feel about plastic straws, henna?
1: I mean, I think the, I mean, I think if you, I mean, the UK kind of one of our leading policies against plastic pollution was banning plastic straws. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you look at the numbers, I mean, it just doesn't make a dent in the problem. I think it's a good like headline for the government to claim that they're doing a lot, but it really makes very, very little impact.
0: And you, yeah, which, which doesn't mean throw your plastic straws out the window, but you say just don't make it, don't stress about it. Don't make that your major focus yeah. of your stress.
1: Yeah, I'm not telling everyone to use loads of plastic straws and, and throw them away. Um, I just think, in some sense, it's a kind of scapegoat by a government to look like they're doing a lot when actually it makes a very little impact on the overall problem.
0: Both of our major party leaders in the uh, pre-election debates last year were were asked what people can do to help fight climate change. They both said recycling. Um, I don't think that's the right answer. What is the right answer for individuals?
1: Yeah, I mean it's the same and if you do public surveys and ask people what's the, you know, the best thing you can do for the environment. People will often say stuff like recycling or changing their light bulbs or, you know, reusing plastic bags. And those are all fine things to do and they will reduce your environmental impact. But they're actually quite low on the list on the the numb the big things that you can do. Like the big things that you can do are one is looking around diet. I think people often focus on energy and don't look at diet. Uh, by far, the biggest way to reduce the carbon footprint of your diet is to eat less meat, in particular beef beef and lamb. And I know that won't be popular in New Zealand, hmm. um, but that is a, a good way to cut your carbon footprint on energy. like The big one is how you travel. So um, walking, cycling, public transport is obviously best. If you need a car, then switching to an electric vehicle is much, much better than a petrol or diesel. Um, Flying is obviously a big thing. And then in the home, um, uh, a big thing is your heating. So um, in the UK, for example, like a big push and, and what would make a big impact would be replacing your gas boiler with an electric heat pump. So these are like the really big things that will account for the majority of your carbon footprint and recycling and focusing on plastic bags and stuff like that's fine to do and, and, if, and, and it's worth doing. But I think the risk is that we focus on that stuff and we completely miss the really big things that will make a difference.
0: Speaking of being unpopular in New Zealand, I, I think you say that plant based milk beats milk milk all the time, to- uh, basically uh, every time in terms of the impact it has on the environment.
1: Yeah. So if you look at, um, regardless of what metric you look at, so carbon footprint, land use, um, even water pollution, uh, plant based milks tend to always be better than dairy. Um, the one caveat to that is if someone Uh, relies on milk a lot for you know the protein intake Uh, and in in most countries or most western countries that um, consume a lot of protein it's often not absolutely essential for protein intake but for someone where that is the case and they do rely on that as a protein source then that switch wouldn't make sense but if you're getting sufficient protein then then plant-based milk definitely does reduce your environmental footprint compared to dairy.
0: You've done great work on this, Hannah. Thank you very much for your time today and for spreading the message. Dr. Hannah Ritchie, a researcher at Oxford, deputy editor of Our World and Data and author of the new book, Not the End of the World, How We Can Be the First Generation to Build a Sustainable Planet. Thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you very much.